Well, last week we finished up Acts chapter 12, and we are in a series going through the book of Acts. Uh, the, uh, the chapter last week actually ended, and what happened was Herod tried to take the glory away from God. Um, and what we saw was that God is not in the business of sharing his glory with anyone or anything he created. So if God created it, he's not interested in sharing his glory with it. Now, we're going to get to that slide in a minute, but I just want to give you uh, an update of where we're at with all of this. Today, we're actually going to shift into a new phase in the book of Acts. So uh, chapters 1 through 12 walk us through the birth and the growth of the Jerusalem church. So that's what we were looking at. We were looking at the, these people coming on the scene and who they were and what was happening and where they were. It was the, the birth of a whole new movement. It was the birth of something called the church. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit was going to move the message of Jesus to places it had never people had never dreamed of going, let alone seeing God do something there. Places that the, at the time the, the charge was given, the people that were given the charge didn't even know some of these places existed. And in chapters 13 through 28, we're going to walk through the advance of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And if you remember back in Acts 1.8, it, it's, it's a passage where Jesus says, but you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Witnesses. Remember back when we talked about that, the, the word literally translates into how we define it still. If you are subpoenaed to be in court, you are to be a witness, and they're going to ask you questions, and you're going to answer questions honestly about what you have seen and experienced. From your perspective, this is what happened, this is what I saw, this is what, this, is what I, this is what I was involved in. So we've overcomplicated this being disciples or being uh, messengers of the gospel. We've overcomplicated it sometimes to convince ourselves that if you don't have a master of divinity, you can't go out and do something big for the gospel. But what Jesus is saying is that you're going to be my witnesses. You have seen me. You have spent time with me. You, have been you will be. The helper will come. And you will be indwelled with the spirit of the living God. And then your job is to go out into the world in which you live and be a witness. Tell people what you have seen, what you've experienced, how it impacted you, your testimony, your story. So the latter half of Acts tells the story of how the Holy Spirit works through Paul, Barnabas, and a whole cast of different people, and how they bore witness to the gospel as it began to expand to the ends of the earth. That first part, we saw take root. We saw Jerusalem. We saw Judea. We saw Samaria. We, started, we saw that take place in the first 12 chapters. Here we are just a short time frame in, and we're about to see the gospel expand into the ends of the earth. Now, we've already seen that some of that has already happened. We've seen that there are people in uh, Cyrene, and there are people in Gentile territory that have had the gospel and are taking it and taking it seriously. But this is the first time we're going to see an intentional movement of the apostles into the ends of the earth. Now, you can put that up, Eric. Thank you. 
Okay, so can you see on the screen there, it might be a little hard to see, but if you look on uh, for you, it would be your right side, uh, and uh, you're going to see, these are Paul's missionary journeys, okay? But we're going to focus in on the first one. Do you see the yellow line? See where the map says Palestine, and there's a yellow, I don't have a laser pointer. Uh, You have one, Dusty? Okay, so follow that yellow line up. And you're going to get into Antioch, but somewhere in between there, there's a road to Damascus and in through uh, Syria, and that's, can you, the shaky hand, boy, are you trying to tease, are you trying to tease the cat? What are you doing? Let's just, let's just forego the laser pointer. It's like, here, just watch. Okay, let's just follow the yellow line. Okay, so Jerusalem. And Caesarea, we learned about that last week, right? That whole area, we've seen Paul there. And if we're, if we're talking about Saul in the early days, we actually see him persecute the church in those areas. And then he's on the road towards Damascus, and that's where he meets Jesus. That road actually takes him up into Tarsus. You see Tarsus at the top of the Mediterranean Sea there, or like the top right of the Mediterranean Sea? Okay, so he's in Tarsus for three years. We see the church in Antioch start to explode. We start to see people come to know Christ. Gentiles come to know Christ. Barnabas arrives. He sees the evidence of the grace of God. He's very glad. He encourages them all to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. And he stays with them and he teaches them, but he also realizes this is far beyond my gift set. Paul's been, Paul's been being trained and equipped long enough. It's time to call him out of Tarsus. And so it says at the end of chapter 11 that uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus and got Saul and brought him back, and they lived with the people there for, three, for a year. So what we're about to see is Paul's missionary journeys throughout this area. So follow the yellow line, and that's where we're going to go. And then once he circles the whole way back into Jerusalem again, we're going to see him go out again. We're going to see this. Ha- we're going we're to track this. Most of it, a lot of it, between 13 and 28. We're going to try to point you where he's at on the map, but just look at that area. So if you look where Jerusalem is, not a lot of people understood that the world was a whole lot bigger than what you see on the screen. What you see on the screen is about as big as they thought the world was. So when they, when they hear Jesus say that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the area around Jerusalem, Samaria, where all their enemies lived, the people they didn't like, and then to the ends of the earth, This is about as big as their mind could conceptualize what that meant. And that's a lot of land to cover, right? That's a lot of ground to cover, especially on foot or on a boat, right? But that's relatively small subset of the world that we live in. Am I I right? So this to them is the ends of the earth, and it was a daunting task. Looming over them is what you see to the other side of the screen where Paul ends up. The red line ends in Rome. That's where Paul eventually dies. Spoiler alert if you didn't know that. And Paul's dream is to take the momentum of the gospel and get it in Rome because he knows that the world is bigger than what the world around him believes it to be. And culture is flowing out of Rome. If the gospel can infect Rome, then it's limitless how far this thing could go. 
So Paul's very ambitious in this. He understands it. And that's this. what we're going to see through 13 through 28 is that journey through that. We're going to see that Paul, how the Holy Spirit works through Paul and Barnabas, like I said, a whole litany of people, men and women, to see the gospel extend to the ends of the earth. We're going to see how the gospel makes huge strides in the hearts and lives of people. We're also going to see that true gospel ministry a lot of times comes with enormous suffering, trials, and opposition. Albert Moeller says this, Where you find the kingdom of God advancing, you will find mounting spiritual opposition. Not all of the stories that we read about in the latter part of Acts are rainbow and butterfly stories. There's hard moments where we realize that if we're going to take this gospel thing seriously, we have to know that Jesus was right when he said that the world will hate you because of me. That in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you heard a bogus sermon somewhere along the line of your life that said God wants you to be happy and healthy and rich, that is not the story of Jesus and that's not, that's not essentially what this world, this maybe 80 years that we'll get here longer or shorter on this earth is a blip on the radar of what our lives really consist of. And Paul lives a life that just hearkens to that reality. So three things. Well, chapter, chapter 13 through 28, it shows us these three really important lessons for the church in our day and age. You can go ahead and take that down, Eric. I want to keep looking up at it, and I'm, I'm done talking about it for now, so I don't need any more distractions. Uh, so it gives us these, these messages and these lessons for our day and age, a church that, a lot like the church in Paul's days, up against some fierce opposition. And in our case... It's from the forces of a secular world trying to make us more modern. So we're supposed to take the message of the gospel and make it match the culture that we're in. Make it more modern. Modernize this thing. Make it make, it make sense. Make it more palatable. Make it more easy to digest, right? That's what we're up against as a church. So what they were up against, what Paul was up against, was extreme opposition and, and a hatred of this message. And what we're up against is is the same kind of persecution, but it's not going to manifest itself the same way necessarily. So three things that I, want, I think we're going to see between today and the end of Acts are this. Three things. One is that Acts 13 through 20, the second half of this book, it shows us this deep need for God's people to passionately live out of the beauty of the gospel. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul says this. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I, re that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is sort of Paul's last hurrah when he says this in Acts chapter 20. Did you hear that? Let me read it for you again. If you want to highlight this in your Bible, Acts 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was Paul's life. The term tent maker is attributed to Paul, and that's because he literally made tents as a side job to be able to make his way through life. He didn't see himself as a tent maker who sometimes talked about Jesus. He saw himself as a servant of Jesus that happened to make tents to make money so he could tell more people about Jesus. Wouldn't this world be a better place if we all viewed our careers like that? Paul lived out of the reality that God had redeemed him from something terrible. And it drove him to want others to experience that life-altering grace. It drove him to, to want people to experience that road to Damascus moment like he had. Was that fun for him? Probably not. It probably wasn't fun for him to be terrified by a bright light that blinded him and voice that said it was God. The unknown of not being able to see anything and everything that he thought he'd built his life on being shaken to its core and then realize that he was going to move into something different, something better. But he was going to leave a whole lot more behind. And in the moment, he had to wrestle and grapple with that. But what drove him was that he had been redeemed from something terrible a life of self-absorption, a life where if he was educated, he was at the top of the pile, a life that if he was zealous about what he believed, he was the one that rose to the top of the heap, a life that said that if I A plus B always equals C, if I do this and do this, I will always get this, a life that said that if I follow the rules, that's how I gain favor with God. That was Paul's life, and he had been saved from that. And if you take that even further, the way we should take it, Paul was saved and redeemed from a life that ended in an eternal state without being in the presence of his creator, God. We call that hell. He knew what he had been redeemed from and what drove him is to want others to experience that grace. So when we see Paul get frustrated, he's getting frustrated with people that have a contrary message to that. We see people, when we see Paul get rub people the wrong way, and by the way, by the end of this chapter, we will see this happen. It's going to be because he's speaking out against something that he's experienced, and he knows it to be true, the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. That's the first thing. Is that The first thing, just to review, is that this, we, it shows us a deep need for God's people to just passionately live out the beauty of gospel ministry. And the second thing, Luke is the writer of Acts, and he details out these chapters, the mind-blowing power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing we're going to see is just the mind-blowing power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 13 through 28 walk us through how a group of extremely unlikely men and women literally altered the cultural trajectory of the world. Let that sink in. If what you saw on the screen was as big as the world was to them, a group of ragtag people who had no business, especially from a credential standpoint, being the main mouthpiece of the only message that could give eternal life. And those people altered the trajectory of the world. You and I are sitting here today because people did this. 
Have you ever thought back that far? We were the ends of the earth. Regardless of what our media might tell you, America is not the center of the world. And so we were the ends of the earth. We were the ones that needed the gospel sent to us. We were were the recipients of someone taking this mission seriously and bringing it to us. We were the ones in need. Somewhere along the line, we believed a narrative that because we're Americans, we give to the world and everything's sourced through us. That's a lie. We're in desperate need of truth, and truth was brought to us because people in the Middle East, by the way, got the message and brought it to us. They took it seriously, and they brought it to us. They were missionaries. They brought us the gospel. And that's only done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Only an entity like God could move people through the things that God moves people through that we see in Acts 13 through 28. And that same Holy Spirit, if you're sitting here today and you are of the redeemed of the Lord, that same Holy Spirit that indwelled Paul, that, in, that indwelled these missionaries, it's in you. And the third thing, It's going to show us that the church must be marked by an unshakable trust in the sovereign power of God. That has to be a distinguishing mark in the life of the church. An unshakable trust in the sovereign power of God, especially in the face of suffering. Because what we're going to see is we're going to see Paul beaten, we're going to see him stoned and left for dead, we're going to see him shipwrecked, we're going to see him held in chains. But even with all of that mess happening in his life, God is with Paul even in those sufferings for the glory of the gospel, for the glory of God moving the good news forward. See, Paul lived his life to treasure Christ above all else. And so when we live our lives to treasure something that cannot be stolen from us, do you realize that? Most of the time, what we get self-protective about is a treasure that someone can take from us. So we get self-protective, we get self-righteous, we get territorial because we're, at our core, we're afraid that something's going to get taken from us. We're over-sheltering with our children. We're over-sheltering with our decisions. We're, we're overprotective with our things. We're not generous. We're not kind because it's somewhere deep in us. We believe that if we do the wrong thing, something's going to get taken from us. But if we treasure Christ above all else, that is a treasure that nothing can ever take from us. Nothing can take the treasure of Christ away from us. So if our hope and our security is built on the fact that we treasure Christ above all else like Paul did, then we live a fearless, dare I say at times, reckless life for the sake of the gospel being forwarded and advanced. Because fear doesn't have any place when I know what I treasure can't be taken from me. So Paul lived his life to say, I don't have anything of earthly value in this world. I sold a few tents. That got me a few meals on my next hike. You can take my life. 
but I just get to stand before my creator, God, if you do that. So I wonder if sometimes Paul was kind of disappointed that the stoning didn't work that time. And he mustered up the strength and he crawled back into Philippi and he told him the gospel again. Three shipwrecks, by the way. The guy should have stayed away from boats. He lived his life to treasure Christ. There is a boldness and a confidence that's rooted in something eternal when we treasure something eternal. And when our treasure is something eternal, nothing temporal could ever remove it from us. If we learn anything from the life of Paul, that should be it. Because when we live like that, it actually gets the attention of the world that we live in. And it gives us an opportunity to introduce people to the Jesus who altered our lives, and we get to give him all the glory for it. If you haven't yet, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. It's on page 636, if you're using the Bible in front of you. We're going to look at the whole chapter 13 today. In the last, like, 10 minutes I've got with you, we're going to look at all of chapter 13, okay? Some of it I've already looked at, and we've, we've looked at the heart of it, but I thought it was important for us to lay out what we're getting into from 13 to 28. But I want, to, I want to just read real quick, just read to you a couple verses at a time. I'm going to stop and just talk through what's happening here. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So I just want you to see something in the first verse. Luke does something very intentional here. He says, now there were in the church at Antioch, and he goes through a list of names. And what he's doing here is that he is letting us know that Antioch now equals Jerusalem as a church hub in that area of the world. We're going to start to see that Antioch and Jerusalem are equal in their terms of influence in the Christian world. Everything used to source out of Jerusalem, and now Antioch, a Gentile territory, is going to be equal to that. In verse 2, we see another amazing thing, and we could spend a whole morning just looking at this. Verse 2, look at what the church is doing when it's gathered. By the way, how many times have we seen them gathered doing this? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They're fasting and praying for God to meet them. And in the middle of doing that, God literally interrupts them and says, I got an answer for you. The Holy Spirit speaks to them in the middle of their prayer meeting, in the middle of them worshiping, it says. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In the middle of them praying for something to do. What is our next move, God? What do you have in store for us? What do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? God answers them and says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. I have work for them to do. Notice it doesn't say exactly. God says, okay, so here's the strategy. Get the marker board out. I'm going to give you every word for word instruction on what you're supposed to do. No, he just says, set them apart. 
for the work that I have set out for them, that I have called them. So then they keep fasting and praying, and they lay their hands on Barnabas and Saul, and they sent them off. The church that's gathered lays hands on them, and they say, go. God has work for you to do. Go out there and do it. Verse 4, we see that they head up on to Cyprus. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of that, but Luke tells us three pretty big significant things here. Uh, and so I want to give you three things. First thing is the strategy. Luke tells us three significant things, and the first thing he tells us is a strategy. If you read through the next 15 verse, or up to like the end of verse 15, uh, you're going to see the strategy play out. And the Barnabas and Saul start to preach the word of God in the synagogues. That's, that's a pretty important part of their strategy. They begin to preach to the Jews in the synagogue, and they let the gospel, the true Jesus gospel, captivate people who already have a glimpse of whole truth. They're going to go into the synagogues because that's where the people who say they love God are already gathered. That's part of their strategy. They're going to go into the synagogues and they're going to teach the gospel. The second thing that we see throughout this section is a man by the name of John Mark. Remember that uh, his name's John, but we call him Mark. Like I said, these guys are terrible at giving nicknames. And by the time we get to this part, they just call him John Mark. And everyone's confused. Let's just call him John Mark. But this John Mark is the one that actually wrote the gospel, Mark. And he's an apprentice. That's the second thing that I want you to understand. The second thing that Luke's trying to tell us here, significant things, is the strategy. And two, John Mark is the second thing that stands out. He was an apprentice to come with them. He's the author of the gospel of Mark. And this is the start of uh, discipling and mentoring men and women to carry on the work of the gospel in church planting. When they got called out, they automatically took an apprentice with them. When they got called out, they automatically found someone who was faithful in the word and they took him with them. And they said, we're going to go and you're going to come with us and we're going to teach you how to do it and someday you're going to do it yourself. And that begins this long list of names that if you keep track of it, there's Dozens of names of people that fall into this category, people that were friends with Paul and Barnabas and were equipped for this task and sent loose to do it. The third thing, what we see is in verse 9. Let me read this to you. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him in verse 10 and said, you son of the devil, he confronts a magician here. I'm not going to go into how mean he was to this guy. He was rightfully so, but still... In verse 9, Luke writes, Saul, who is also called Paul. Why does he say that? I want you to notice that it doesn't say that this was his new name. That's a common misconception that we believe that at some point along the line of Saul's life, God says, now you will be called Paul, like Abraham, right? Now you'll be called Abram. So this isn't a moment like that. Paul actually has two names. He has a Paul who is also called Saul. It's kind of like John who's also called Mark, right? But this is all, but that, uh, Paul is actually a Roman name. Paul is a Gentile Roman name. And this is signifying that Paul is going to have a mission that increasingly moves into Roman-occupied territory. 
Paul's going to start using the name that will get him in the door in Roman territory. Saul is his Jewish name. That's what he was referred to when he was working amongst Jews. And as he starts moving in the Gentile territory, his name shifts to Paul being the predominant usage of his name. Luke tells us those things on purpose. Now, what we see next from 15 on is that Paul is in Galatia, and from 15 to about 41, Paul preaches truth. He preaches a, an amazing message. Like I said, we don't have time to go through every word of the sermon, but I will say that I highly encourage you to read through that for yourself. Read through that sermon that Paul preaches in 13, about 16 through 41. Paul is confident in the message. He's confident in what he's saying. But one thing I do want to draw our attention to is what he says in verses 23, 24, and 25. He's talking about Jesus. And up to this point, by the way, in his message, he's gotten the attention of this crowd. And he's saying things that won't necessarily be inflammatory to them. But in 23, he starts to amp it up a little bit and give the full gospel of this man's offspring. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, 25. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And Paul goes on to equate that this Jesus that the Jewish people had put to death to try to squash what they called a rebellion was in fact who they feared he was. He was the living son of God. He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And up to that point, his message is talking about Jewish history. He talked about Samuel and he talked about David. He talked about the lineage and he gets to Jesus and says, everything points to this man. Everything points to this son of God, the redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus and in verse 46, if you can flap over there, flip over to that, uh, flap over to it, I don't know, anyway, flip over to that with me, 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now, that might be something that we just like read past. This moment is a huge moment in the life of the church because Paul is looking to a predominant Jewish crowd, Jewish leaders alike, and he is saying to them, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Because you trust the law to save you, because you don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, because you will not allow yourself to be convinced of this truth, we are turning to the Gentiles. This isn't Paul saying that they're unworthy of having the gospel. This is Paul saying, this is not what God's called me. God did not call me here to try to re-theologize you and get frustrated, bang my head against the wall, trying to convince you that what's true is actually true. We're shifting to the Gentiles. That's what God has called Barnabas and I to. And then he does something unspeakable. He quotes the prophet Isaiah like was in our uh, call to worship. But he, uses, he, he implies that that prophecy was speaking about him. 
Verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Do you get that? Paul's saying, you were told for centuries that you didn't have access to this truth. And I tell you, that's a lie. Jesus is accessible to you. Jesus, the only true way to salvation is available to you. That is what I'm here for. That is what I'm going to tell you. That's what I want you to know. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced. They begin rejoicing and people are coming to know Christ. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Here we go. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. A group of people that did not like what was happening and didn't like that their personal kingdom was starting to get shaken up. So what, they, what do they do? They go to the town's most influential people, they stir them up, and they say, listen... Listen, you let these guys hang around long enough, you're going to lose all the stuff you like. And so they stir this up. They stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and he drive them out of the district. Verse 51 says about Paul and Barnabas, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Shake off the dust of their feet against them. What does that mean? Well, that is just an act of protest and disgust. These are some of the reasons I love Paul. Because Paul doesn't just leave. He leaves and is like, I'm going to leave my dust on you. You know, like, uh, he, this is an act of protest and disgust. Because he knows. See, Paul lived it. He lived a, 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 a life completely devoted to the law. He knew what it ended with. It was a dead-end road that left him feel like there was absolutely no hope in the end because he was going to break that law, and if he broke that law, he didn't have access to God, and it was, a, it was a downward spiral. So then you have to use the law some way and bend it to make yourself feel better so you become elitist. and be, If I can obey more laws than this, this group of people, then I'm going to become elite. And so he was one of these elite people at one point that they went and rallied and stirred up against him. He knows who's coming at him with persecution because he used to be that guy. He used to be the influential one in town that they'd come to and be like, hey, we've got to squash this rebellion, get these people out of town. And so Paul would do what he had to do to get them out of town. He used to be that guy. And so now he's just disgusted. So as an act of protest, he basically says, if the gospel's going to get you here in this town, it's not going to be because God uses me to get it to you. And he leaves. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's verse 52. They were persecuted. They were kicked out of town. And they left filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now it says that, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That implies that it's no longer just Paul and Barnabas leaving. Joyful in persecution 
You see, this is good news. But when we bring good news to a people that have never heard it, they have to wrestle with the bad news first. And when people start wrestling with their own bad news, that they're in a desperate spot without Jesus, and they realize the things they're going to have to leave behind to pursue Jesus, as the people we're living life with grapple with that, some of them aren't going to like it. They're not going to like how it feels. And they're going to feel like this message of good news doesn't feel all that good. You're telling me I need to give up all my fun and give up on these relationships and move into a different area or whatever, right? So no, it doesn't seem worth it. So as Paul brings the good news to people who are so deeply entrenched in the law and their elite status in their towns, when they start grappling with the reality of what they have to give up to really pursue this Jesus, instead of pursuing Jesus, they persecute the messenger. That's what persecution is going to look like in the churches. People who don't like what the good news sounds like. Because to them, they like their lives better than the good news sounds. The bad news needs confronted first in their lives. It's not our job to confront the bad news, by the way. It's our job to be witnesses of what the good news has done for us. The Holy Spirit convicts the bad news. I'm not a fan of the method that goes up and asks someone, have you ever lied? Yeah, then you're a liar. Have you ever been angry at someone? Well, according to Jesus, you're a murderer. You need Jesus. Let's pray. Like that evangelism technique just doesn't seem to hit the heart of how Jesus did things to me personally. So if we're supposed to be witnesses, then that means that we need to live this out just like Paul did, find joy in it like Paul did, even when things don't go our way. In, verse, in chapter 14, when we look at this next week, we're actually going to see Paul get stoned for the first time. And I don't mean that he's spending time in Colorado. I mean that he's getting like rocks hurled at him. And in the meantime, what we see is this man living out a faithful calling to God. So as a church, what does it look like to be completely renovated and completely made new by a holy and living God? What does it look like for the Holy Spirit to transform us and then live a life like Paul, who even when things don't go the way he wanted them to go or thought they might go, walked away from the persecution with joy, worshiping God? God, will you please work in us and through us and do a work? Will you please produce in us the kind of life you produced in Paul? A miraculous transformation into someone he never thought he would become. A person whose zeal and love for you was far greater than he ever thought possible. God, thank you for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. I pray that as you do a work in our hearts and lives, you transform us more into your likeness and you give us a passion and a zeal just like you gave Paul to be completely renovated and made new. Change our hearts, change our minds.